So good to see you. Uh, my name is Corey Bendix. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor of Outreach and Evangelism. Um, those books are pretty good, right? Yeah. If you haven't gotten a chance to crack one open, we'll give you one on the way out. Um, wear this thing out over the next eight, eight weeks. We worked, uh, Pastor Miata just crushed it with this book. She really worked hard. Um, and... I hope that you see the excellence that we've put into this book because of the fact that we want you to value what we are diving into, namely Romans 8. This is not about what we try to put together. This is about you treasuring this book with all that you are. And now allowing for your eyes and your heart and your hands to, again, come alive and begin to be open. Um, go to Romans 8. We're going to go to two verses uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2, I have the privilege of opening this up, but I also, um, I'm a little spoiled because I only have two verses. And so I can go, I can really, really um, dive into this. But what I want to do is I want to simply title this, In Christ, where we start, where we stand, where we stay. In Christ, where we start, where we stand, where we stay. Over the la uh, last week, um, I kind of gave a little bit of context of this book. Uh, it was written in 57 AD by Paul to a church he'd never been to. This church was going through a ton of challenges, namely division on all sides. And what is Paul's answer going to be? It's going to be the gospel in the fullest possible way. And last week we looked and considered that the, this idea of gospel, it's an announcement. It's uh, euangelion, often translated good news. When the Roman emperor uh, sent a proclamation around the empire declaring victory or achievement, this was called gospel. This is good news about a king and his kingdom. Uh, what, what we find is that um, there are many words in the New Testament that the authors, they take and they, they basically, they, they use that and they redefine those words for something else. And this is what's happening. The word gospel is a declaration about our king and his kingdom. A kingdom that's being created. It's being formed in, in you and I. And that we're, we're now those that are carrying this gospel everywhere that we go. That, that we are holding it out. That we are now those that receive it. We embody it. We embrace it. And we express it. Uh, last week we talked about how uh, the gospel is not something you graduate from. But you move more closely into that. We talked about how the, this, this, this letter was written to Christians, not non-Christians. Now, for many of us, we hear the word gospel and we're like, man, that's, you know, that's for people who don't know Jesus. Yes and no. Because the, what Paul's going to show us is that the gospel is for Christians as much as it is for non-Christians. It's something that we constantly are moving into. It's the, it's the hub in the wheel of the Christian faith. It's not something that is just one area of the Christian faith. It is the centrality. It's that which we can now allow for God to wash over our life with his gospel. That uh, last week we learned a couple of Latin words. Simul justus et peccator. That means simultaneously justified and sinner that we looked at Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 is that we're slaves of righteousness. It's really good news. It is an identity statement uh, that, that, we, that we are, are imprisoned, with, if you will, in a straitjacket of righteousness. 
Just imagine that. It's that which you can't get out of even though you try. And I try. Like, like we, are, we are enslaved in righteousness. This is who we are. But simultaneously, then you transition into Romans 7. And Romans 7 is about Paul who has seen Jesus. And as a result of seeing Jesus, he is seeing himself and he is falling short. And so all in Romans 7, 17 times the word law is used. We find that the law illuminates sin but has no power to eliminate it. We find that it points to righteousness but can't produce it. We find that the law will inform us of our sin but cannot transform us. This is what we find in, in Romans 7 is that the law points us. It's, uh, we're going to discover it's an x-ray machine. It tells us what's wrong but it has no power to fix anything. I love what Luther says. He says the law is a divinely sent Hercules to attack and kill the monster of self-righteousness. <laughs> Uh, I love this. Like, like you, you find in Romans 7 that we have a serious problem. It's called, it's called us. It's called our, our, uh, the expectation of being perfect as God is perfect. Being holy as Jesus is holy. And we can't do it. That, that what Paul does is he gives us God's demand, perfection. He now diagnoses us. We can't do it. And he gives us deliverance. Jesus did. Like this is, this is my, our job as communicators is to simply point us to the law and what we are expected and demanded to do, namely be like Jesus. It leads us to a reality we can't. And now it rushes us to hope Jesus did. And that's why at the end of this chapter, he says, oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. John Bunyan in 1650, I love this little statement he says. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Like this is what, what we're finding in Romans 7 now, transitioning into Romans 8, is that there is hope. But Romans 7 asks a very specific question, important one. What help does God give to people like Paul, like you and I, that think they're beyond God's help? You see, what Paul says, he says at the end of Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. He's saying, God, what can you do to enter into my brokenness? And then we find Romans 8. What I love about Romans 8 is that there is one word that you need to circle all throughout the Romans chapter 8, and it's the word spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, what's fascinating about what Paul does in Romans 8 is, is that in one chapter, the word spirit is used more in this chapter than in any other chapter in all the Bible. What's fascinating is in Romans 1 through 7, we find the word spirit or Holy Spirit mentioned five times. In Romans uh, 9 through 16, it's mentioned eight times. In chapter 8, it's mentioned 21 times. Now, what's fascinating, I think, I think he does this on purpose. I think he mentions law 17 times in 7. And then what is he going to do with the law? He's going to double up or he's going to go above and beyond. And he's going to drive home the hope that you and I have in now defeating 
sin and now, and now stepping into victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he does it through this, this fact, this reality that God gives us his very best, namely his spirit. How are we going to find victory? Where is there hope for the brokenness in you, in the mirror? It's through his spirit. You see, what, what Paul is doing is he's taking this idea that, that, that the, the purpose of the spirit is to deliver God's grace from the throne to you and I. But I think so often when I think of grace, it seems to be hypothetical and theoretical, not necessarily personal, existential, meeting felt realities. But what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to help us see that, that in the throne of heaven, there is a spring of grace that is just bubbling up and it is just explosive and it is not stopping. It's, I love this idea of, I used it on Sunday and I didn't really explain it well, but like, even like the idea of Vesuvius, like this volcano that's exploding. And now, the, like Vesuvius, in many years ago, it killed people. But now in Christ, you have this Vesuvius that doesn't explode with death, but explodes with life. Like grace is exploding from the throne room of God's kingdom, of, 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 of where he is right now in heaven. And what the spirit of God does is he takes that grace and now the spirit is going to bring it to you and I. And he's going to do it through, the, through Romans chapter 8. And Paul, he just cannot stop reveling in what God gives to the undeserving through the Holy Spirit. It's nonstop. And so let's begin. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God, re- <laughs> this is so good, he relocates us from an old environment of constant crisis to a new environment of clear and strong acceptance. He's literally taking us out of Romans 7 and he's, he's bringing a summation of chapters 1 through 7 and at the same time, a future projection of the rest of the book of Romans all in one simple but profound statement. There is therefore now no condemnation. And nothing summarizes the gospel like this one line. You want to know what the gospel is? I mean, do you want to explain that to your friends? If you're like, man, I don't even know really, Corey, what the gospel I got the answer. We got it. It's just Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Do you know what the Spirit of God is going to preach to you for the rest of your life? No condemnation in Christ Jesus. You, you, you want to know what, you know, Corey, I don't hear from God. No, no. If you don't feel like you're hearing from the voice of Almighty God, just allow your heart to quiet and you'll begin to feel from the inside, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is where we start. This is where we stand and this is where we stay. This is it. This is the centrality of the gospel. This is all we need is this declaration to you every day. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is where we start. This is where we stand. This is where we stay. And this is not something that you and I leverage. We can't just figure out a way to get this 
into our space. No, God lifts us into this reality of no condemnation. I mean, you see, God's doing all of the heavy lifting. It's crazy. So it starts in one word, therefore. It's just, he's just, therefore. So it's chapters one through seven. It's a summation. He's pulling all of one through seven, which is a holy God, a sinful man, coming wrath, perfect savior, Jesus Christ crucified and risen, justification by faith, sanctification by faith. Therefore, bam, he's got it. And then he now brings us now. Therefore, now. Therefore, now. Like now. Not now, five years, no. Now. Like Like right now. Now, this idea of now, it's... It's both chronological and anticipatory. Like, I, my dinner is ready now. Okay, it's like chronologically, it's like time-wise, Bendix is ready to eat. Let's do this. But if you've ever had your kids see a Christmas gift for like a week, they come up to you, Dad, is it ready now? Dad, now, 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 like now. Now, I mean, like, it's just like nonstop. Like there's anticipation for the gift that's at hand. And I think what Paul's doing is he's now taking what the law and the prophets have been saying all in the Old Testament, pointing to this day that there will be no condemnation. There will one day, there is going to be a day where there will be no condemnation. That all of the systems of sacrifice will no longer be needed. Why? Because there will be a day where there will be no condemnation. And that day, that day is here. That day is here. Now, there's now no condemnation. Now, now this this, don't step into no condemnation. Now, this is a big one. This is a big one, right? So I'm going to do the best I can to like sift through this. But in the Greek, the word no is none at all. Like, like, it's not just no, it's, it's emphatic. It's, ex, it's like multiple exclamation, it's emojis here. Like, it's just trying to draw your attention. No, none at all. No, none at all. What? Condemnation. Well, this is a pregnant statement. And I think the best location that we see this idea of condemnation is in John chapter 8. With a woman caught in adultery. Do you remember this? Like, she's caught in the very act. Like, this is visceral. This is emotional. This is, this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming that she's brought to Jesus without her clothes. And you have this moment where she is condemned. She is found guilty. She has no place to hide. That she's fully isolated, fully rejected. Judgment is strangling her, stripped of her humanity, completely humiliated, afraid of the judgment to come. This is who she is. And what does Jesus say in her greatest place of exposure? This is what Jesus says. Woman, where are they? So you have all of these guys who come with rocks ready to stone her. And he says, whoever is without sin, by all means, throw away. And guess what? These men were caught holding rocks, and they are just slowly dropping them, one after another after another. And it all leads us to, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So you have in Jesus this moment where he's not just forgiving her, he's giving her a right and an authority to now have power to do something she hadn't had before. She's giving her a righteousness. Now with this righteousness, he will end up paying for because Jesus will end up going to a cross and now enabling her to have and stand on that righteousness that Jesus Christ gave her. Now, this is called imputing. I know this is, let me just real quick explain to you what this word impute, I think I've got a definition behind me. This is what imputing means. To impute means to treat as if. To regard a person as if he or she had such and such, and such a value or quality, although intrinsically he or she does not. It is the assigning of worth to someone who would not otherwise have such worth. Theologically speaking, imputation is the crediting in our favor from the standpoint of God, who is the source of judgment of the perfect moral worth of Jesus Christ on the cross. Conversely, Imputation implies the humiliation of Jesus Christ at the moment in time when he died by means of transfer to him of the full burden of human sin universally accounted to us. That Jesus is offering her a worth she doesn't deserve and now is giving her the power by which to be identified as such and to live into that. This is what it means for you and I to have no condemnation. Now, condemnation is the fear beneath all fears. This fear creates depression, stress, and anger. And it's had a reign of terror since Genesis chapter 3. Fear of being found out. I mean, like, like have you, like, I, when I was a kid, I went to Longfellow Middle School in McLean, and we would, I, I lived in Vienna, and so we would take this bus, and we would ha always have to go through the toll road. One day, somebody said, Corey, throw an apple at the toll booth lady. And your boy took that apple and rolled down the window. And I have the worst arm in the world, and so I thought, man, I'm going to throw this thing, and I'm probably going to hit the next car over like top of the toll booth. I chucked it to this lady, and I got her right between the eyes. And as soon as I did it, like, we've all, we've all been there. When you do something and you get, like, you know. Like, you know. And so I went, I went inward, and I, I hid. I just got behind the seat. I put my head down like I, like I pretended like it didn't exist. And all of a sudden, the toll booth lady stops this bus, runs out of her toll booth, stops the bus, gets on the bus, and marches and points her finger right at me. I mean, you're talking about a moment where I am undone. And internally, all of us know what, what this feels like, spiritually speaking. Where we are undone. We are condemned. We have no place to hide. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is that I am now proclaiming you. I am imputing to you a righteousness that you do not earn and you do not deserve that is more powerful than the emotional feeling of condemnation and fear of rejection that now for many of us, it doesn't just reside, it guides us. It's that which wakes us up. 
It's that stock ticker, that ESPN ticker down below. You know, like when you're watching ESPN, it's always there. You always know what the scores are. I mean, no matter what commercial it is, it's always rolling. That is condemnation. It's always there. But because, therefore, there is no now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That the reign of terror is over. Now, the implications of this is now you and I can be fully known. That, that because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to be afraid of being found out. Amen. That because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to be afraid of being rejected. Now, because of what Jesus has done, that now it's visceral, it's internal, it's real, it's something experienced, it's something practiced, it's something inter- that, that we are now constantly in, stepping into, that because of that, we can now show up to people and open our hands and offer to them who we really are. We can be fully known. But not just fully known, we can also fully love. We don't have to lead with condemnation for other people. We don't have to wait for them to make mistakes and just constantly like, hammer them with condemnation. Hammer them with rejection. And we give it out because we feel like it's being given to us. But because of no condemnation that's right now, we can actually live in a different way. But remember, this is something that Jesus Christ relocates you to. This is not about your performance. This is not me trying to give you three more things for you to do. There's implications to this. And let let me just say this. When it comes to no condemnation, that does not mean no consequences. That horizontal consequence does not equal vertical condemnation. That when you say there are no condemnation, that when, when, when we say there's no condemnation, that, that sometimes the consequences are steep. Sometimes we have to come real, like come to the light, like be honest. And it's going to cost us. But just because it may cost us doesn't mean that Jesus has rejected you. That there will never be a vertical rejection of you, even in the midst of you coming to the light with things that you've been holding. No condemnation. Let me just say this. There is, there's hope for this. Like, for example, like with your physical pain. Have you ever had a, like, you've been going through something with your body and you're like, God is judging me. See, you're not, you're not being honest with me here. Like, we've, we know what this is like. We're going through something and we conclude I'm being punished. Or, for example, like, your, like your, your, the idea of, of parenting and, and this constant struggle that you have of failure with your kids. I have jacked them up. I, I have not shared, like, I've not opened up the Bible enough with them. I mean, I, I am the reason that they are going to be, you know, on Dr. Phil's couch in five years. Like, I, it's me. I am the reason. Like, we, I'm telling you, I could go down the list here and just point out multiple places in which we instantly slide into condemnation. But can I just encourage you that there is now no condemnation. Why? Because of we are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Now, this is in Paul's language. Like when you and I read this, for me, I don't really think that it's that weird because I've read it so much. But I, this week I stepped back and I'm like, that's kind of weird to say that you're in someone. 
You're in Michael Jordan. What? 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 Like, like, that's not normal. And it wasn't normal in the first century either. Paul's, what he's doing is he's trying to say something that no one's ever said. And so he uses language that no one's ever used. It says that, that now for those who have moved all of their chips into the middle and cast all that they are on Christ Jesus, that Jesus has literally moved them to a new address. That we have a, we have a new place in Christ that he himself has provided. And we see it, I mean, even like the very lifeblood of God is in us, namely his spirit. Like this is what God in Christ, the heavy lifting has been done by him. Even like in Romans 6, it says that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Romans 7, that we are now literally married, have union with Christ. That we've taken his name. The pressure is not now, please don't hear now, oh, it's something for me to do. No, no, no. It, it is Jesus and his commitment to give you and I his name. And now he wants to touch every part of you as a result. Like this is, even, even the language of I am the vine, you are the branches. That he has so joined himself to us. But union with Christ doesn't fit comfortably in the margins of our life. Like this is not about going to soccer practice, going to Home Depot, hanging out with the kids and union with Christ. You got to hear this. The totality of you is redefined by and located in the totality of Christ. He has taken your story and written your story into the resurrection. You are literally in two places right now. You are in D.C., and you are in Christ. And that is real. That is, that is legitimate. That is visceral. That your place, that if something were to happen in D.C. right now, or with you on your way home, your place in Christ is as indestructible as Christ himself. I mean, you, you, got, you got to get this because... This is where we start. This is where we stand. This is where we stay. Like, this is the reality of our relationship with God. It's not just some mental ascent. It is a literal encounter with a living God who now moves us, relocates us into being in Christ. And then what this does too is it redefines our understanding of identity. I am what I do. I find my purpose from inside of me. I mean, we, we live in a day where we just sprinkle, garnish Jesus on our life. And this is just the way that it goes down. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to add. Jesus is an additive. He's a, he's a substitute. He's a, you substitute that. You just bring him in. It's a part of the whole experience, Corey. It's a part of the recipe. No, 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 no. I don't think that it is. Because what Jesus is saying in this, in this identity, in this idea of being in Christ, is that it's not something that you add him to, that being in Christ kills all of the preconceived notions of identity and resurrects a new you. He wants to redefine who you are. He has a bigger view of you than you do. He cares more about your family, your future, your life than you do. 
Like this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to have a relationship with, with God that he defines, he empowers, and now he is joining us in this journey. And there's like the Bible is replete with just in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Christ we have redemption through forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That as a result of being in Christ, we are a new creation. That 2 Timothy 1, 9. Because we are in Christ, we have grace before the ages even begun. This is what it means to be in Christ. And the focus is not my transformation, but Christ's substitution. You got, we got to get this because I think it's easy to to bring a, a summation of the Christian encounter is just to grow me, to grow my relationship with God, to, to somehow continue this, this upward uh, trajectory of becoming stronger and smarter. And yet the purpose of Romans 8, the entirety of the book, of the chapter, is substitution. It's what God in Christ has done to substitute you for him. It's what Athanasius, the great church father, said it's the great exchange. And then, oh man, 826. All right, I'm going to fly through this. For, for the verse 2. See, this is just, I'm good. It's amazing how, how rich this is. I'm going really slow, and I'm sorry. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul gives us a new way to be human. That our new relationship with God has, has been defined for us. And he has defined it and he's given us all the tools by which to live in it. See, in chapter 7, Paul talks about how, how he is ruled by God's law. He's ruled by his own conscience. And the more that he lives in light of that, the more he fails. Again, the law is a, an x-ray machine. It shows you who you are and what you need and forces you back to Jesus. That, that, he, that his failure perpetuates failure. You see, it begins with sin and compromise and, oh, just this once. He does that and then he goes to regret and shame. And when you taste regret, when you taste shame, you literally taste death. You taste it. You know what death is like when you've tasted that. The emptiness. The disconnection from God, the hurt that you know you put on others. But then what Paul, he, he salutes the flag of the law and he tries to pick himself up by his own bootstraps and he tries to just gear himself up and this time I really mean it. And then he fails again. It's this vicious cycle. It's called the old covenant. It's what it's called. And there's a new arrangement called the new covenant. The law of the spirit of life is involved. See, this is the hope that we have of the law of the spirit of life that is freeing us from our own patterns. And the spirit, it literally, it, in, it internalizes the moral beauty of God's law. So the spirit now is entering into your, 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 your actual emotions, who you are as a person, the spirit of God enters into that and begins to shape and form and then remold new passions and gives you new motivation 
It's not about you doing stuff. It's about the Spirit of God doing the heavy lifting of, of now entering into those who have open hands, open hands, and have gone all in, all of you for all of him. And then all of a sudden, the, the Ten Commandments, like we were thieves, but thieves become generous. That we were adulterers, but adulterers become devoted and faithful. Well, what is that? That is the law of the spirit of life at work in you, now creating and awakening you to be who you were always designed to be. Man, this is, this is, the, this is what it means. We, we come alive to the, the humaneness that God delights in. This is what it means to begin to enter into a relationship with God that is empowered and birthed by the spirit. Let, let me end with this. Um, love this quote. There's a theologian commentator. He wrote this, Leon Morris. Moses' law has right, but not might. Sin's law has might, but not right. The law of the spirit has both right and might. So what you have is that you have two laws that have fallen short. The law of the, 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 the old covenant, the law of God, the law of sin, both of them have power. But then you have the law of, 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 of the spirit that enters in with both might and right with, with saying two things, no condemnation and the spirit has set you free. What I love about this idea of the spirit setting us free, this freedom, it's decisive, it's final, but it's progressive. It's a process. And this is what it's like. This is water that I... I got from a, a lake right down the street. If you can see it, it's got a little bit of floaties in it. It's nasty. It is, if I were to drink a lot of this, bad things would happen. And what we've been reading, this is what's called a life straw. If you've ever been out in the, in the, in the wide open and you are in need of water and you don't have it, what this does is this has multiple filters inside of it where you can take this life straw and you can literally put this thing anywhere you find yourself. And what will happen is what was poisonous becomes now life-giving. And so you can find life anywhere. Wherever you go, wherever you find water, what once would bring you death now can That is a tasty treat. <laughs> what once brought life or death now can sustain you. Amen. Now you can go anywhere and now what you once received is condemnation. That now relationships and marriages and now your kids, everywhere you go, you felt like, man, I'm being condemned. I feel like this is just giving nonstop death. In Christ Jesus comes both no condemnation and life in the spirit everywhere that you go.
We no longer have to live by the three words, just do it. But we can live by the three words, it is finished. Lord Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We thank you for your word. It is life. It is life to us. We cannot live without you speaking freshly to us, no condemnation. Lord, we, those are the words we long to hear. Long to hear. For some, we are broken and bruised and battered and, and literally in pieces. And Lord, we hear those words and we say, yes. Yes, come Lord Jesus, come. For some, we are just, we are on, on a roll and things are going well. And we are just, we're seeing that we have been self-righteous. We are, we, we are just killing it and we know it and we tell people. We've heard that even in our, in our really good seasons, yet we are falling short because, God, we, we still need more. We need more of you. And we hear and receive your words, no condemnation. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that is going to give us the life straw of your forgiveness, of your peace, of your wholeness, of your, of your word. Lord, we thank you that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is coming close to revive us, to renew us, to drive us back to you, to drive us back to other people, to open up, to not be afraid and not fear rejection. Lord, we honor you for what you are doing right now, but what you will do in the weeks to come. Thank you for your word. We love it and we love you. Amen.